This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative software and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their 7-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. If there is one thing I love about photojournalism, it's the license of the camera and the pursuit of the story provides access to people's stories and lives in a way that's unlike any other practice. Whether it's the life of a politician, a musician, or a coal miner, Photojournalism is a marvelous way to see and experience the world that we live in. Arthur Grace's career as a photojournalist has allowed him to travel the country and around the world to document events both big and small, including the Olympics, the rise of democracy in Poland, and several presidential campaigns. Those experiences have resulted in hundreds of thousands of photographs and more stories than we have time for on this podcast. Arthur's work is that rare combination of great art and exceptional journalism, and I'm so pleased to have him as a guest on the show. Sit back and enjoy our conversation with Arthur Grace. Arthur, thank you for uh, and having me over to your house and having a chance to, to talk to you. Oh, welcome. And, uh, Six weeks left and we're out of the house, so <laughs> one of the last guests. It's a, it's a nice house. Whoever's moving in is very lucky. The light in here is just, just gorgeous. Yeah, my wife built it. Oh, she did? Oh, nice. Um, you know, it's it's looking in, looking at your career and looking at your work, uh, it's, it's been really interesting for the sort of point of view that you've, you've had to look at not only the world, but to look at America uh, in 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 a, in a pretty kind of unique way, and as a, in your role as a magazine photographer, and it seems that uh, now it seems like the United States, this, this country, is really really polarized. But in reading some comments that you made about your book, that you kind of observed that you know, in the in the forty plus years that you've been photographing that uh, the country really hasn't changed a whole lot, that they deal with the same anxieties, the same fears, the same aspirations. And uh, I thought that was sort of an interesting observation because it seems like with everything that you read or you see on television that it's quite contrary to that. 
And I thought that'd be a really good place to start in terms of how you've sort of your own personal perspective of of this country through your camera over the years. Well, the uh, you, you have to start almost with what's different now. Uh, I don't know whether I could. I mean, the polarization is obviously there, and that's going to limit how you proceed to photograph the country. I was fortunate in the years that I did it that that polarization, which is caused, in my opinion, by cable TV, by lots of things, um, people on blogs, internet, uh, they can say things, uh, let's say, anonymously, with handles, so to speak, mm -hmm. and everybody gets to say what they want. It's uh, very difficult to go out and shoot, and with after 9-11, to get out on the street with a camera. I really haven't done very much of it, but I know that people have stopped constantly. Uh, why are you photographing me? Uh, what are you doing here? Why are you pointing a camera at that building? So it's interesting when I stopped shooting more or less for the book. Um, it was in the early 2000s, but people, uh, you were still able to go out and do what you wanted to do. And now, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you're better off using a cell phone camera than anything looks like a real camera. So yeah. the whole way of working, the whole way of uh, approaching uh, photographing America is is changing rapidly. Let's put it that way. The same concerns are still there. I mean, nothing has changed in terms of people's patriotism. Maybe it's uh, highlighted more than it used to be. Xenoph people being xenophobes, I don't know. Um, uh, the violence culture is much more in the news, but the love of guns has always been there, you know, 40, 50 from the time the country began. Uh, the quirkiness, the craziness, that's always there. More so and better publicized than in the past because, again, of the Internet and websites and all those things. So the core values that kind of identify America, freedom, uh, uh, independence, uh, uh, cultural issues, you know, barbecues, things like that, uh, that are very American, they're all still there. But they're never going to change. How we approach them with a, a visually, with a camera, that's changing rapidly. So that's that's the big difference. Um, and I could give you a couple examples. Um, when I was shooting the State Fair book in the early 2000s, I was um, using a Leica and a Rolleiflex. And I had a credential um, from the State Fair of Florida at the time. Um, I was acknowledged accredited journalist, and I was going about my business. And there was a cheerleader competition going on, and it lasted three days. And it was unique because these younger girls, some of them really young, are um, putting on makeup and looking very older, but it's groups of like 20, 30. It's a cheerleading team. It's, it's that sort of thing. And one morning, there was going to be, uh, there was a rehearsal outside the stadium or the hall that was taking place. And uh, I'm taking pictures of everybody warming up. The coaches were there. The adults were there. And um, all of a sudden, some man comes up to me out of the blue. It was 10 in the morning on a Sunday morning. And like I said, a lot of people around. And he confronts me. What are you doing? What are you doing here? Why are you pointing the camera at those girls? And I said, excuse me? I said, I'm, I'm an accredited journalist. I'm here for whatever. I think it was there for Zuma. Uh, what's the problem? Uh, I'm doing my job. Why? 
I saw how you were looking at the girls. I saw the way you were pointing at camera. You wait right here. Don't you move. Don't you move. And he looks at his friend. Keep an eye on him. Don't let him move. And he goes running off. And he was uh, sort of a rural kind of guy. Yeah. And uh, comes back with the police, a policewoman. And she comes up to me and goes, who are you? I said, well, I just told this gentleman I'm a journalist. I'm here accredited, uh, blah, blah, blah. He said you were pointing a camera at these girls while they were doing their exercises, whatever. I said, yes, I'm taking pictures of State Fair. I'm doing a book on State Fairs. Let me have your film. You open, open your camera and let me have your film. I want your film. You stay right here. You don't move. I, didn't, I, I don't believe you. I'm going to have to check. And but She starts in. And it was like the old days. Um, so she runs off. The other guy's looking the other way. I, I take my film. This is film. Okay. <laughs> roll the triax. Yeah. I rewind it. Literally, I, I, I put a fresh roll in. I put the other one in my socks. And uh, they come back. And um, she said, we're checking on you. And, um, uh, you know, give me your film. Uh, I want your film. So I while we're checking. So I take the film out, hand it to her. She runs off. Now, no one's kind of looking at me. So I immediately exit the state fair, get in my car, drive to the hotel, pack my stuff, and leave. Because they were going to arrest me, okay? And I had already, that was the last day I was going to be there. I, was, I had a flight out that Sunday afternoon. Yeah. You know, it, it, obviously, if it had just gotten there, I wouldn't have handled it that way. But I wasn't going there. Okay, to be accused of something, um, you know, looking at young girls. And the, the whole thing was going in a really bad direction, <laughs> really bad direction. And I was having none of it, so I was gone. And I learned that a long time ago. Uh, um, you know, moving your ass out of something is often the wisest thing, <laughs> uh, rather getting hip deep in trouble. Yeah. This was a long time ago. I was um, in the first day in the life book, day in the life of Australia, uh, I was assigned to to a prison in Adelaide, Australia. And uh, it was just me and my Leicas and, you know, available light. And well, as soon as I got to the prison, the warden, everybody said, you can, you can be here, no problem. Um, and they said that they gave me permission to be in the yard with the prisoners. And, I, you know, I didn't want to shoot from a distance like caged animal. I mean, you either get in or you don't. So they said, no problem. And so for two days, just lingering before the day, I mean, checking things out, lighting what, what I was going to do um, before the actual shooting day, I was moving around with these guys and they were okay and everything was cool. And shooting day came and I heard some screaming in the afternoon or it was late morning. I hear the screaming inside one of the prison blocks. And I go in and... Uh, some prisoners going berserk, a young kid, maybe 19 years old, and he's screaming and yelling and the guards are grabbing him and he does, he's putting up all this resistance and all of a sudden somebody comes behind him and injects him with something, uh, grabs him, injects him. Anyway, I, the, I took the pictures and I went about my business and maybe it was later in the afternoon. Anyway, I'm taking all the pictures for the day, you know, of prison couples of people playing soccer. Da -da. All of a sudden, I get a call. Uh, one, some, uh, one of the guards comes up to me and goes, the warden wants to see you right away. And I said, oh, sure, okay. So it's like four in the afternoon at this time. And so I go to the warden's office, and he said, what were you photographing? Who were you photographing? Did you photograph this uh, inmate? Well, he was being restrained by officers. Him. I said, uh, yes, yes, I did. He said, well, we're going to want your film. We're going to want everything. And I said, excuse me, the 
you know, this, I have permission to be here. The prime minister of Australia knows I'm here. This is a government sanctioned book. I mean, they know all about it. Do you really want to, well, what's going on? And he said, well, I, I need to get a further report about you, but let me tell you one thing. Either you give me a film or I'm putting you in this prison with these prisoners. You're going back in the yard on your own without your cameras and I'm taking your film. So it's your choice and I'll be right back. I look out, I look out and I'm right by the opening to the prison. Like the, the gates go open. There's an inner gate that opens and closes, yeah. an outer gate that opens and closes. And my driver was out there because he was supposed to pick me up at a certain time. We're going to have a lunch break or excuse me, dinner break. And I saw what was going on. The gates open, the inner gates and the outer gates open at the same time. I took off <laughs> right through the gates. Absolutely true story. Took off right through the gates, jumped in his car, went to the hotel, drove me to the airport, and I was the first one back with my film. <laughs> they like Australia. They'll tell you that. What are you doing back so soon? Well, I had to leave a little early. Um, so, I mean, we think it's getting off track, but what I'm saying is you point a camera now, if it looks like a real camera, I mean, you, you're at risk. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially if you're pointing at children or buildings or whatever. So I don't know what I'd do today. I think about it, even with a point and shoot camera where, I, where I'm pointing. Um, well, that speaks to that whole idea of how people try to control the perception of themselves in photographs, particularly when they're institutions. And you covered, um, you know, the pres several presidential races. Uh, and, you know, had, you had the opportunity to be around, you know, many candidates. Uh, and you made the book in 88, of the 88 Yeah, it came out in 89, yeah. Choose and and, and tell me about th that time as far as photographing the, the candidates. Because now it seems like there's so much more control over, oh, over the candidates. And That's a, a night and day story. I mean, I was... Uh, I would say I was so fortunate um, in the position I was in at the time in 1988 uh, to be able to be in the last call of people who were able to be the fly on the wall, to actually see what was going on. Um, after that, people did it, but they were restricted. You can't come in for this meeting. You can't do this. You can't go in this, in this car with the candidate. Because I found out because people did that kind of story in 92, 96, and, and it got increasingly difficult to do. At that point, um, they wanted the publicity. And I was working for a magazine, news magazine, and they wanted that publicity. And we made it was a certain ground rules set up in 1988. Number one, people knew who I was. It was my fourth campaign, presidential campaign. I had you know somewhat of a reputation for being what a okay guy, honest, you know, didn't uh, you know behave sort of, although I was a little crazy at the time. And <laughs> um, so that was one advantage. Second one is Newsweek um, and Karen Malarkey gave me free reign. I was representing them to come and go as I pleased. Um, I had credit card, had uh, the travel office helping me, and I was able to come and go. And the third thing was we told the candidates right from the get-go that the only thing that would be published is a portrait of them, a candid portrait, at the time I was out with them. But the majority of the photographs would not appear until after the election. So they understood that, that this was, everything was being held for the book, for Newsweek special edition or election issue, something like that. And 
that was it. I had carte blanche. And, and I was out with every candidate from the very beginning, Democrat and Republican. So it was a perfect uh, time because it was a new president. No one was running for re-election, although George Bush was had been the vice president. So that's how it started. And they allowed me to do everything and anything. So number one, it was totally, uh, you know, a gift for any photographer to, to be able to have that kind of access. Um, and I knew that right from the get-go. And they never questioned me. No one said, get out, don't come here, don't come there. Only in a few instances where I was out with certain candidates who were partying a little bit. And uh, <laughs> was, there were a few times I was told to leave the Rolex outside the door if I wanted to come in and join the uh, entertainment, dinner, whatever was going on. So, you know, th those kinds of things happen. Um, but in general, I was able to do whatever I wanted. And because the cameras I used were so quiet and so unobtrusive that it, they never got in the way. It was so, I mean, actually at that time, uh, I was only using Rolleiflexes, twin lens Rollies. So I only had this box camera on my neck. That I shot the whole project with one Rolleiflex with a 2.8 planar lens, the fastest they had. Um, and I had a little bag, just a little bag. My uh, rolling, I think I kept one with my luggage or somewhere, or maybe I had the backup rolling in my bag, but they never saw it. And a light meter, small one. And I had a baby Linhoff tripod, the lightest and smallest one they made with uh, adjustable legs. It snapped out so you could set it up really fast, and I had a quick shoe on the, on the rolling. So I basically had a studio in my, in my, around my neck. Yeah. Okay, because I didn't care what the light was like. There's no mirror bounce. So I was, that's why I chose that camera, because then I could do a half a second, a full second. Made no difference. The first picture I ever shot in that project was of Gary Hart um, in Pensive. It's on the wall over here. Um, uh, talking to a, a powerful group of contributors in Cleveland in 1987. I think it was the first time I shot the, uh, any of these pictures. There was a snowstorm outside. It was a blizzard. We, we, it was already eight inches of snow on the ground. And all, so you can imagine the light from a blizzard. It's, there is no light. Yeah. And I shot that picture to half a second. And dead sharp because of the camera. So that's why I wasn't threatening to these people. I didn't make noise. The camera wasn't clacking. There was no motor drive. I wasn't fumbling, you know, for, for this lens and that lens and the other lens. It's just was beautiful <laughs> that, that simplicity reigned and it worked at that time, at that moment in history with these people. Uh, before, like I said, the internet and websites and everything being recorded and everything you're doing, you know, your cell phone camera. So this is a different era and it was magical. And that shot is, is, you know, quite striking, especially after the, you know, after his fall. Um, oh, yeah. That, that, that image Monkey became. Monkey business, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that image became sort of iconic of that whole, whole you know, that whole event. Uh, even though the image was made before uh, any of that happened, people kind of associate he was doing the monkey business yeah. at the time. <laughs> but he hadn't been exposed yet no, for that. For no. That. So, no, he hadn't. So talk about that image and how it, how an image can all of a sudden have so much resonance when certain events, you know, come to pass. Because I think... Well, that, that's why you never, you know, that goes down to digital and, and, and destroying pictures or erasing them versus keeping pictures because in the, in the analog age, you knew you could go back in your... 
files and find things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's done anymore that you have these pictures to go back to and later say, oh, I remember he did that, but that was at the time he did this, but I erased that card. You know, I don't have it. Um, so that's two things happened. Like the famous story of Dirk Halstead and Monica Lewinsky. Uh, mm-hmm. In the digital age, that picture would never exist of, of uh, Clinton greeting her on the South Lawn of the White House and shaking her hand or him leaning in, the picture that was on every magazine cover and made Dirk a pretty penny. It was good. But he had somebody go back an assistant and look through every one of his yellow boxes because that's what we had in those days. Yellow boxes, Kodachrome, Ektachrome coming back yeah. in boxes and you'd edit them and you had the record of what you shot right there in the boxes and that's how we found it. But when you say what, what the reaction was later, sometimes the reaction later you find out maybe the significance of a photograph like with hard, but also at the time I was shooting, I got in some trouble also uh, with Dick Gebhardt. I was out with Dick Gebhardt, and th- these people have to be machines to do this in terms of their endurance and what they have to put up with, and the scheduling and the the cars and the two seater planes and everything else. So we had spent a long day, the reporter and I, with. Um, with Dick Ebhart. And he had to get back to Boston, but he couldn't fly, so we had to drive because it was a snowstorm. Again, a snowstorm, but not a bad one, so we drove. And he was hungry, and so we decided to pull over at a Hojo's. And it must have been midnight. And he sits at the booth, and he orders, I don't know, ice cream float or something like that. I forgot what's in the picture. And I'm right across from him. And I got the, you know, like I just kind of balanced it on the table or on a salt chick or something like that. And... I got this picture of him showing something so important that you don't get to see with all the hair and makeup that they had even then, hair and makeup, especially for TV appearances, the complete exhaustion on this man's face. A truer picture. I mean, this was it because he had bags under his eyes. I'm sorry, the lighting wasn't great, um, but that's not my job. And and I took a very real picture of of a nice man, exhausted candidate after a long, long day. Well, when the picture came out the next week, that was it. He didn't want me back on the campaign. He didn't want to see me again. Um, he was furious. And I think the week after, he dropped out. So it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't affect me long term. I think a week or two later, he dropped out. What? But So you can have an instant result in something, you know, it can go either way. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. Squarespace continues to improve how you share your words and your art online. Its new feature, Summary Block, offers a new and exciting way to share your content on your website or blog. You can now showcase your content in a new magazine-style format that's clean, stylish, and attractive. You have total control over the thumbnails, titles, and excerpts, which can be displayed in a carousel or a tiled format. It adds a dimensionality to your content that beats the static and boring sites that are frequently found all over the web. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and go for it. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. And talk a little bit about the the reality of magazine work, because when you go out on assignment and you're covering a candidate or anything, mm-hmm. anyone else, um, the space that's sort of relegated for for the story is pretty finite. So, 
Um, you may take hundreds, if not thousands, of photographs, but sometimes only one would make it into the, the magazine. Or if you did have a spread, you'd probably only have a, a smattering of all those pictures that you made. What was that whole process like um, in terms of you know you getting your, 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 your film back, um, getting well, a process the, and working with the editor? The main, the main thing you learned, or I learned in magazine photography, is you edit in the camera. I was never a big shooter. I never was a volume shooter, uh, ever. Um, and I learned that from the beginning with UPI, because I was a stringer for UPI in the beginning of my career in 1972. It came in off the street. Anyway, they taught me basically everything I know. Um, and one day I went to a, um, it was a Celtics game. Let's say it was a Celtics game, or as Bobby Orr was playing. It was a Bruins game. I come, come back, and they told me to leave after the second period, come back to move the pictures. And Boston Garden was in the office. I run back, and I, I'll never forget, George Riley was in the dark room, and I put down like six rolls of film, seven rolls of film on the table in the dark room. And he goes, what's that? I said, it's the film I shot. He said, where's the picture? I said, what do you mean? He said, what role is the, what role is the picture on? I said, I don't have any idea. You have to know mm. what role the picture's on. I don't have all day. We can't soup seven rolls of film. It's not happening. And he goes, pick one. And that's what he did. He just wow. picked one. He just picked one, developed it, got a picture off that, and that was it. And that's how I learned. Um, you know, shooting a lot is not uh, a positive thing in certain ends of the business, like in news photography, like we're in for a wire service. You know, keep it lean, keep it tight. No one wants to go through 18 rolls. Now, if you work for Geographic at the time, you know, that's what they expected. That was a good thing to shoot a lot of film, give them a lot of choice. You had time, generally. Um, and for photographers who were shooting for uh, the agencies, like Contact or Sigma or Gamma, you shot a lot because they didn't want to do dupes. So you shot a lot of originals. So the same thing, you know, kept the motor down so everybody that had more originals to hand out. And also you were shooting color and black and white at the same time, something that's, you know, now with digital, you can do either one. But going back to your question, the editors are under pressure, okay, and um, in the magazine world. And it depends the timing when the film gets there, how busy they are, how whatever. That's one problem how fast they have to do it. And number two is the editors, the managing editors, the top editors, not the picture editors, but the top editors um, really reigned. They, they, they decided the photograph. The director of photography would come and give them a choice. There would be a carousel. In those days, was a carousel, a tray. You put it in, and, and they would choose the picture. Um, so you were better off holding your fire, so to speak, when you're out in the field and – you know, trying to get those pictures that you liked or that were really important to the story. And hopefully this cut down your chances or increased your chances of having a good photograph published, especially if it was a one-off, you know, mm -hmm. like a candidate for that week. Or when, in one case, I was, you know, in Poland during martial law and you could only transmit a few pictures, better make it the right one that appears in the magazine. So it was for me uh, more or less being on the ground, seeing what was going on, trying to keep it tight. By the last presidential campaign uh, that I actually was out with a, a 35 millimeter was 84 with uh, Carter. Uh, it, I think it was 80, 80, 80 with Carter. 
Um, and I was a White House photographer for Time Magazine. Uh, I purposely, that year, uh, only used two cameras and no motor drive. And this was in the motor drive era when everybody had three motor drives, and for good reason. I mean, things were happening. But the weight was killing me, and uh, all of it was just, I said, I'm going to try to just wait for the picture, and hopefully I don't get screwed, <laughs> and it doesn't happen in a motor sequence, motor-driven sequence. So even back then, I was cutting back to shoot fewer photographs and to hold my fire, so to speak, until yeah. something worthwhile happened. It's, Other people, you know, they have different approach. The approach is give them everything, shoot as much, so they'll, they'll get what they want, and I'll be published, and this will be great. Um, that's fine, too. But a lot of times they could have an accident and yeah. publish the wrong picture. Well, I so, mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's an incredible challenge because so much of that involves being present and also being able to anticipate, you know, with that something is about to happen. You may not be able to sort of quantify it, but being ready to be able to capture that moment. Well, it's, it, it's much more than that. I mean, that that is what we called it um, – uh, the reason everybody covered the president and, and spent all that money to have reporters and photographers at that time, and let's say in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, was the death watch or whatever you want to call it. Be mm -hmm. Because there have been assassination attempts, assassinations, obviously, and you wanted your person there for that dreadful moment if it ever occurred. Like when Salgado was there when, um, you know, for the New York Times Sunday right. Magazine mm -hmm. when Reagan got shot and Dirk Halster was there and, you know, people were there. And he was just exiting the building. This had nothing to do with his speech, nothing to do with greeting well-wishers inside. That's what you did. You covered his entrance, his exit, everything. And sure enough, unfortunately, what happened to Reagan? So um, there's that part of the job, which I didn't have to do in 88 when I was running around with the Rolex. I was not responsible for the day-to-day -day or the body watch, like whatever they want to call it, death watch, body watch. I forgot the expression. Um so I didn't have to do that. But in 80, when I was covering the Carter campaign, um, it wasn't just being aware, and you had to be, of where he was. And, and if there wasn't a lid on, you were there. But the other part of it is looking for something different. That was the key to my career of what I did. I mean, I was because it was just in, in eight. I don't know. I, I, I saw what was going on. Okay, now show me something different, or maybe I can go over here. It looks different. Maybe with this lens, it looks different. Maybe I could go, whatever. And, and you got that great picture of Carter on the hood of a car. I think it's a caddy shaking hands. Yeah, yeah. That was, that, that was, everybody got that. That was a shot for the pool, uh, meaning all the photographers got that shot. It was, okay. I, I don't know they got that exact frame at that moment, but that was an open picture. That's a great example of a wonderful opportunity, a nice picture to happen that everybody could get. And, you know, one of those moments. So but, give me an example. So an example of, for instance, this is one that always comes to mind. Towards the end of the campaign, the last week, I don't think he knew he was losing. I think he had the sense he was losing, but he hadn't been told. Because when we flew back the night before the election, he was told that he's going to lose. So, but they may have told him a little bit three days out, four days out. It was after the debate with Reagan in Cleveland. It was a disaster for Carter. At any rate, he was exhausted. I knew Carter because I started with him in 1975. Time magazine sent me up to spend a day or two with him. And it was Carter, myself, and Jody Powell in a station wagon just running around. No one had heard of him. No one knew him. So we, we went back a long time. And so he knew me. Anyway, he was um, 
he was exhausted. And he used to, we, 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 he was, we were getting four hours sleep a night. And at one point, you know, he, he would go at the foot of the podium, the pool, and I would fall asleep. And one time, actually, in a speech, he stopped and he, and he said, you know, call my name. So you wake up. I mean, somebody, some of the press is sleeping because it was that exhausting. At any rate, um, at one of those times when I was under the podium and everybody was kind of not paying attention, I wasn't either. Um, I, I turned around, I noticed his hands were draped over the podium by the presidential seal. And they were, mm-hmm. he had Band-Aids all over his fingers, his knuckles. And just turned around, did a close-up of the presidential seal. And I think because that told the story, I mean, of what his campaign was like. Reagan would get up at 10 and do one event and, you know, being <laughs> having dinner by 5. And the guys, you know, uh, with Reagan looked like they were at a spa. And the people with Carter looked like it was, you know, the Bataan death march. It was just, <laughs> there was, it was horrible. Um, no sleep, no anything. But uh, so I took that photograph. And I mentioned it to the nation editor. I said, look for this picture because this really tells what's going on. And they ran it big in the magazine. So no one else had the picture. So it's that kind of thing can happen where you're just looking for something different and you take that picture and, you know, the, it turns out well. Yeah. But there's both ways, you know, but that's that's politics and campaigns and that's a whole other breed of animal and what happened to it and, you know, the lack of access and the lack of availability. It's, it's a tragedy what's happening now, especially when you hear about the Obama White House and the lack of uh, ability for the photographers to cover anything. Because yeah. that was a, a tough place to begin with, even in the 70s, what they'd allow you to do and what you couldn't do. And there was a famous story once of uh, Helen Thomas were waiting to go into the Oval Office for a big event, but Sadat and Begin were there. So some huge story, maybe it was Gorbachev, and a lot of the reporters were bitching right outside the door saying, you know, we never get to see anything, you know, we keep us waiting out here. This White House is horrible, not like other White House. And Helen basically yelled at them, stop complaining. What are you people talking about? Don't you get it yet? And they said, what? And they said, she said, 90, you know, the American public doesn't know 90% of what's going on around here, and we don't know 95%. So get over it. <laughs> get over it. Um, and, you know, that's, that's it. They can, they can cut you out of, the, of that kind of loop of the White House anytime they want to. So accessibility is, is whatever they say yeah. it is. I always said, what happens if a president comes in office, doesn't want to hold a press conference or do anything? I guess technically by the Constitution, he doesn't have to show his face till the State of the Union. I have no, I have no idea. Uh, you mentioned earlier about, about uh, your travel to to Europe and covering the Solidarity Movement in Poland. Mm-hmm. T- tell us about that because that was a sort of very interesting time. Because now it seems like uh, changes in 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 power and government are so filled with incredible bloodshed and strife. You know events in Syria and, and, and elsewhere, but Poland is sort of a complete different experience. Absolutely. Uh, tell what, us about what, covering di- that. What's different about Poland off the bat, right off the bat, is you couldn't get there. You couldn't get in, okay? That's, that's, that's one of the key points. You needed a visa. You can't just, you know, go across the border. You can't, you know, go take a, a taxi ride or take a bus in at that time. Impossible. So, with Syria, with Libya, with all these events that are going on, 
there's total accessibility, apparently. You know, if you're an enterprising journalist, photojournalist, you can get where you need to go. There's not border patrol. I mean, there's not the, the kind of lid that's on a country, an Eastern European country in the late 70s and early 80s. So first of all, there were a limited, a very limited number of people who had the opportunity to photograph anything or to report from there. And because Newsweek had a photographer in there, Chris Needendahl, a great photographer uh, who lived there, uh, time was allowed to have one photographer on a visa uh, in the country. And same with the reporters. So very few people. It's a tight, very tight-knit journalistic community of, you know, BBC people, Washington Post, New York Times, a uh, very small group, and, you know, banded together and stuck together. Um, so that's number one. You, you didn't have a group of people to fall back on, or you didn't have this this uh, network. Um, you were on your own, pretty much. Second of all, you didn't, this is way before digital, there was no way to message out other than telex. And if you knew how to work a telex machine, and you had to go to the press office, which is across the square, and it was winter, it was like minus 20. Uh, the sun came up at 9.30, and it went down at 2.30. It was the most depressing thing you've ever seen. Uh, which can bribe, drive people to drink. <laughs> Let's not go there. The uh, anyway, the which you know a lot of people in Poland when they open a bottle of vodka, they don't leave till it's finished, no matter what time of day. Uh, so your communication was cut down. So you couldn't talk to your. Uh, main desk in New York or anything like that. Uh, phone was spotty at best. They were listening to every conversation. And um, then it was how you get your film out. This is not the days of, you know, just digital upload satellite. It's literally, here's my roll of film. How do I get it out of here? Yeah. And to your anywhere, like Berlin, uh, excuse me, Frankfurt or Paris, uh, then it can take the Concorde and get there. So enormous limitations, no communication, um, uh, limited uh, ways of working because you had a spook with you all the time. Anytime you went out, somebody was with you. Um, you were lucky sometimes if it was local in Warsaw, you could get away. But um, the that's the restrictions that were on. As far as the photography and what was going on there, it's it was a much more subtle game in Eastern Europe at that time. Uh, other than, obviously, the blood show was in Czechoslovakia, you know, the uh, I forgot what year, 56 in Hungary and, and in Czechoslovakia. But at this point, there hadn't been any bloodshed in any of these um, Eastern European countries, as I recall. And it was always hanging over the place, okay, that some kind of bad thing, violence was going to happen. And this all culminated, you know, weird things would happen. You'd get pushed and shoved. The, the, the secret police would let you know you're there by shoving you up against the wall. Your tires would be slashed, you know, late at night when you were – when it got dark, let's put that, which had to be in curfew. But there were ways they had. I got arrested four or five times just for being in the wrong place or harassment, and then you'd have to get you out. And at that time, you had, if they arrested you, you could disappear for 48 hours under the Polish law. You were not allowed to make a phone call to your uh, embassy, nothing. They could, they could do whatever they wanted with you in 48 hours, and everybody knew that would be a long time <laughs> to, for whatever that they intended 40 hours a long time. So you knew that was going on. You also knew if you ever got hurt in that country, you were screwed because you need to get medevaced out because of the uh, medical facilities there. Um, so there were, it, it all culminated in August of 1982 where the Russians had had it with the solidarity movement and what was going on, even though 
Valence had been arrested by then. The Solidarity Movement had picked the day in August, I forgot what the significance was, to have a showdown with the polls about we're going we're gonna to demonstrate anyway, we don't care. And so a lot of people tried to get in for that big day of demonstration, and the Russians were fed up. And the Poles, you knew, had, had, I mean, the Polish army, Jaruzelski, was going to get ready. And so that was the most tense day. Now, the fact was, no one knew whether they were going to use live ammunition or something else. That's just the way it is. Okay, that, that's the thing. In Syria, everywhere else, you know. Mm-hmm. No, no one's using rubber bullets. It's super dangerous. And, you know, it's, it's the real deal. Here, you did, just didn't know. So that kind of gnaw pit in your stomach and you didn't know how bloody it was going to get or they're just going to open fire like Tiananmen Square years later but uh, what was going to go on so that was that kind of thing so people tried to get in journalists a few more got in and you know it was just tear gas and beatings that's all that happened and uh, they it, it unfolded the way they said and I took you know Photographs of the gas and people running. And, and Chris Needenthal and I went out in the streets together. And as soon as we got the first pictures of, uh, you know, fleeing and gassing and all that business, we had, and in the, these days, this is what you had to do in communist countries or anywhere, I guess, if you were in a place of uh, where they didn't want you to be. We, we had a, uh, I don't know, his cousin or somebody had an apartment nearby. And we ran up to the apartment, we had the keys, and we put our film in a plastic baggie, and we put it in the toilet, in the toilet tank, and left it there. So we'd make sure to have pictures for, you know, of the day, of what happened, in case we got arrested. Because we managed to get the first part out and get to the apartment to hide the film, and then we went out again and kept the film. But that's that's how the thinking was, and that's how you did it. It was just totally different than obviously other kinds of conflicts and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the repression and the lack of freedom, that sort of thing. You you took a lot of pictures during during that time, but is there one that kind of stands out for you? Uh, There were were a couple that uh, stand out. I I took my own photographs, okay? So it was always, uh, again, what, what started to develop with me, Early on was I always took my own photographs, no matter I was on assignment for somebody else. I did what they wanted, but I had a lot of downtime waiting for a visa or whatever it happened to be, or in Poland or in martial law. So I would shoot um, photographs of my Leica, just go off my Leica and shoot. So a lot there are a lot of those, a lot of those pictures. One that's you know important for me is August the dust up they had and the people's bravery i mean it was unbelievable they didn't know they're going to get shot and then couples and young people old people it was really moving seeing them march down the street towards us um and you know we were walking right in front of them and they were putting their hands up in the v for victory or whatever it meant in poland that it was a sign of defiance and it was it was an incredibly moving moment to see these people take that kind of risk um, so those pictures mean a lot to me. Also, I took a picture of a particular priest who was active in the underground, uh, Polish underground, the Solidarity Movement. And uh, he was at the funeral of somebody who had been murdered. And I photographed him uh, giving the V sign during the person's funeral. Later, we met him uh, in a secret room of the parish. Uh, this is during a cold winter day. I mean, and he took us to a secret room and it had all the Solidarity uh, Madonna emblems up of where uh, his groups were and who was active and what they were doing. And um, he was pallid, really, really pale, sickly looking. He looked very nervous. 
And um, to make a long story short, uh, they murdered him, the secret police, and they murdered him about two months later, I believe it was, two or three months later, his body was found in the river. And that was made into a movie starring Ed Harris called uh, To Kill a Priest. But the pictures I took of him have meaning to me because of uh, his bravery, his courage. And um, you don't meet people like that often. And uh, what happened to him, unfortunately. The World Cup has been holding the attention of many of us over the past several weeks, and it's no doubt inspired many people's interest in capturing great sports photographs with a camera. But if you tried your hand at it even once, you know how challenging it can be. Lynda.com has just released a great new course called Shooting Soccer Action, which will help you regardless of what kind of sport you favor. This and other courses you'll find at Lynda.com provide you valuable tips and insight that make all the difference when it's time for you to get behind the camera. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. You've gotten to see like the best and the worst in people as a result of your career. And before we started recording, we were talking about how certain journalists, after their careers are over, favor dogs over people. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, the, the old political, you know, but, if you, we want a friend, get a dog for yeah, a politician. But, but you know, with a career like yours, you have a rare opportunity to see the extremes and everything in the middle in terms of how people can be with each other. But, you know, now when you take a look at your work and your experience and, and your, your career, what are you left thinking about humanity and people? Well, first of all, it's a rare privilege, you know, to have been a photojournalist. Uh, I guess I'm always a photojournalist, but to have seen the things we see. I mean, all my friends uh, and what we get to experience and the highs and lows and the ups and downs, um, that's amazing to have lived through it. And what's most important for us, and unfortunately not for a print journalist or a TV journalist, is we have a, a record of what we've seen and what we've done. So you can sit back, like I did with the, for the America 101 book project, and, and go through my files, go through, go through the negatives, and, and there it is in black and white of where you were, what happened, and your life is laid out in front of you. Historically, where you've been is laid out in front of you, and uh, all these things can't be taken away from you, that you were there, and you have a record of it. A journalist can't has clippings. If he got a clip service, he had clips, and I guess you can go through his clippings, or you can go through, or he did a book. But it's unique to photographers that they have this visual record right in front of them of everything they did. So, so to answer your question, you're able to reflect on what happened, not just in your memory visually, but you have physical evidence of where you were. And it's an amazing thing that in the era of uh, celluloid or whatever, the film era, uh, analog era, that we have this. And it's, I don't think, going to be part of the digital era, but certainly, um, you know, everything digital is on a chip, a little plastic chip has a thousand pictures. And if you want to see your pictures, you put them in a machine that needs electricity, da, 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 da. And, you know, machines that worked 10 years ago won't take the chip now or the, or the data card or the floppy disk or 
but I have pristine negatives that are 42 years old, black and white negatives. And, you know, that's part of the difference. So, but, but what's happening when you look back on it, what, what's the, the bothersome thing above all is the repetitiveness that the more things uh, stay the same, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Okay, because I was in the Middle East in 1973. Uh, I flew in one of the first planes during that war, the Yom Kippur War. I was working for UPI. And, you know, you see a lot of things, and you hope at the end of that war there's resolution to something, and then they, they beat the Egyptians back in the Suez, they recapture the Golan, and hopefully now everybody's going to get their act together and move ahead. And so what? What's the downside is nothing changed. Nothing's going appears. Nothing will change, and so that's sad. Obviously, that uh, people can't get it together, and then there are certain uh, conflicts that are never going to end. Um, racism, we've improved that because I covered busing in Boston and how ugly that was at the time, and it was really ugly. And this wasn't the Deep South. Yeah. Um, and, and not long ago. <laughs> and not long ago. And uh, I remember being in the streets and, and being, well, anyway, it was, it was not, uh, it was historical, but it was uh, very sad to see the level of animosity and racial hatred. And, you know, it's still there. It's, it's improved a lot. But, you know, I'd like to see that be gone. But it's a lot better than it was. At least we see some hope there. But on the upside... Of the good things, not to be negative. I mean, I got to spend a year with the world's, uh, America's top comedians. You know, I did my book, Comedians. So, I mean, what more fun can you have than going out with, you know, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, Jerry Lewis, Lily Tomlin, uh, you know, having a great time. So many of the experiences are upbeat experiences, fun experiences when you meet people of talent and creativity. Um, It's really just a joy being around them. Um, so you see, you know, fun events like covering the Olympics, you know, in LA in 84, I could go through many more upbeat, fun experiences I've had with the camera than the ones that are depressing or bring you down. Let's put it that way. Um, but you always hope for better, better in the future. Let's put it that way. Well, you've been spending most of your time putting together books. You've mentioned your book, uh, Comedians. Um, the America 101. So to talk about this process of taking, going through your, you know, over 40,000 plus transparencies and, and, and more. Not transparencies. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, my personal work is, uh, is black and white. Black and white. Black and white. Okay. So all the books are black and white. My personal preference is for black and white. I shot many, many obviously color Well, you donated 40000 to the uh, Museum of American History? Yeah, they have my color archives. Color yeah, archives. The, the, Senate, the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History. So most of your books are coming from, from your, your personal, personal black and personal white Personal black work. and white, yeah. So the ones, a- these are the pictures that I shot, not necessarily on assignment, from the beginning of my career. I always, as I said, you know, had a camera for myself or, or I pulled the role. Let's say it was in an assignment camera. And I shot something for myself. I pulled the roll, tried to soup it myself, sent them the rest of the negatives. Um, I did it from the earliest days of UPI, of pulling the, the, you know, the rolls. They didn't treat them gingerly. They'd come out of the dryer, you know, on the rack, and they'd throw them on the table, and they're all scratched. And you just take a scissors and cut what you wanted out of those. So anyway, yes, I, I went back and looked. Well, there's one image that it struck me. It was of the Hat family that you shot in Bellyville. Maine, yes. 1974, is that, mm-hmm. that was part of your personal? 
No, well, that was that was uh, for the New York Times on assignment. Well, that, that was on assignment. That, that's that's that, um, it's one of those images that I saw when I saw on your site. Just resonated with me. Could you tell me anything about that? Um, sure, sure. The uh, that was one of those assignments. I was the New England foreign correspondent, I mean, photo correspondent, <laughs> photo correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, that came when I came back from UPI, I was staff photographer there, came back, and Joyce Dopking became the first uh, woman photographer the New York Times staffer, and she recommended me to be the New York Times um, photo correspondent in New England. So that was the job. And I would run all over New England with John Kifton, one of the great, great reporters, the New York Times, and the history of the New York Times. And we would cover all these things. And other reporters would come in from the nation section, and I would do things with them, Craig Claiborne, the, shit, you know, the food critic or somebody. So I was running constantly, and a, a number of times there was no reporter. So I got this call. I was living in Cambridge at a little one-bedroom apartment, and uh, I got a call from Mike Boylan on the picture desk. Uh, he ran the national desk for photos. Oh, no, we got a problem. There was a story. So-and-so reporter was up in Maine. Uh, he's doing a story on potato farmers. Uh, the, uh, the, the crops didn't come in or there's a problem. I, I explained the story. You, I got to find some potato farmers, rural potato farmers who are uh, with this poverty or something that, that are not doing well. He, he just was vague about it, but he gave me the names of the towns. And I said, fine. He said, I'm, I said, how much time do I have? It was like four in the afternoon. And he said, you got to get back here tomorrow night and put on a bus to New York. you got to get on a Greyhound or whatever trailways bus back in Boston to me. I said, it's four o'clock. Okay, I'm gone. I'm gone. So I just threw stuff in a bag, got my cameras in a bag and drove. I had a Saab 96, one of those old on shift on the column jobs. And just drove through the night till I got up to close, took the main turnpike, got up there like six hours later, found a motel that was open, didn't eat dinner, got candy, but you know, the usual crackers, peanut butter crackers <laughs> and soda, the usual, you know, get up and the clock was ticking. So I'm driving my car, all these winding roads, desolate roads. I see nothing, nothing. And I'm starting to panic. Now it's noontime. Uh, now it's one o'clock and I got to, I have nothing. So I'm just whizzing down this road, one lane tar road, and I see a head pop out of the shack. There's this this flash of white that looked like an old grandma or something. It's just so I smashed on the brakes. I must have skidded, I don't know how long. I screech. I turn around the car, I come back, park in front. Now this woman's out in front. And she's something out of uh, you know, the depression here. A old lady, white hair, not dressed well, and I mean rural lady, old lady, and I slowly, you know, get, get my camera and, and I walk up to her. And at this point, her son comes out, one of her sons, and now they're standing together, they're walking towards me. And he's in cover overalls and, you know, kind of dirty clothes, a farmer and not a well-off one. And uh, I introduced myself I'm from the New York Times, doing a story on, on uh, uh, the potato crop and how it's doing and not, not doing well and how it's affecting farm, whatever the truth was to the story, I forget exactly. I told him and I said, I'm looking to take some portraits. I was hoping to take portraits of people who fit this description. Are you potato farmers? Yes. Da, 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 da. I said, will it be possible to, would you mind if I took your picture for this story for the New York Times? And they said, no, no, but, but I'd like my other son to be in the picture. And I said, oh, sure. And then the door opens and this other fellow, the son comes out and he's got one leg and he's on crutches. And, you know, it's just I couldn't believe it, what was going on. And, you know, it's just like, oh, 
you know, don't blow this bit. Just, <laughs> just, 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 just like take your time. Just think this thing through because mm-hmm. these things don't happen often. It's true. That's the right people. It's the perfect for the story. So I, I set them up, meaning for a portrait. And, uh, you know, not the clothes, nothing. Just I wanted the the tractor in the background and and uh, shot it with a one hundred five Nikkor, and then I shot it a few different ways, and. Um, it was amazing. You knew when you're shooting the picture, you had something that was evocative, really moving. Um, so I finished shooting. I thanked them very much. I told them what I was going to do, and I would get in touch with them, and I got their information. And then I floored it all the way to Boston. I mean, just floored it. And I made the Greyhound bus by like 7.30 bus or something like that. And um, the pictures went in, and he called me that night or the next day, and they were all flipped out. You know, put the pictures and very complimentary and all that stuff. And the uh, picture ran. And at that time, th- I was told, I was told that um, that picture generated more mail than any photograph other than, I guess, he would, I mean, uh, that was taken by a Times photographer mm-hmm. up to that point. They were just getting piles of mail about the picture. And that Abe Rosenthal loved it, blah, blah, blah. And they invited me to come to New York and, uh, meet Abe and took me to lunch at 21 and all this business. It was uh, pretty heady stuff for some of you didn't, didn't expect anything to happen. And I, and I was told they, uh, I don't know, because I never followed up, that they put it up for the Pulitzer that year for uh, feature photography. Uh, it didn't win, of course, but uh, that's what I was told. So that was, you know, just one one event, one picture. Now, what's interesting about it, uh, kind of put a bow on it, is when the book came out, um, and this is for every photographer out there. If you think you know, that you've photographed people in the past and they're not going to surface, uh, look out because they're coming. Uh, so CNN put out a, a blurb or a blog, a blog on, on my new book. And we they chose 20 photographs. And one of them was the Hat family. Mm-hmm. And they put it up. And I don't think I had uh, – there was any much text, just captions. And sure enough, I got email Two emails about the Hat family, and one was from their neighbor who said, I was their neighbor. I went to school with the two boys. That was a, an amazing picture. You really captured exactly what they were like. You know, congratulations. That meant more to me than anything, that, that somebody who knew them felt that that picture, you know, was real. Yeah. And so that was, that was cool. Now, other times I got... Uh, who else? <laughs> Some, there's another picture in my state fair book of somebody, uh, which I like very much, on the wall, of uh, a demolition derby at night at the North Carolina State Fair. And when they played the national anthem before the you know derby began, all the guys, the drivers got on the hoods of their cars with their hands over their chest. And sure enough, I got a, an email from one of those people. Can I have a copy of the picture? He managed to see it. So, And it was three or four others in the book. From 20, 30 years ago. Wow, that's that, that they're, they're out there and they remember. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. Any, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, um, I'd have to say Bill Pierce. He's one of my best friends. He's a great photographer. He's... Um, his eye and the way he sees the world is very similar to mine. But that's not the reason I think he's – don't get that confused. Um, he's just an offbeat, quirky way of 
seeing the world, especially in his street photography. And um, I don't think enough people, he was a uh, Time Magazine photographer, war photographer, he covered Lebanon um, brilliantly. He's uh, been a great news photographer, a photojournalist, but in his personal work, his street photography is, is truly amazing. There's several of his pictures around the wall, and I would encourage people to go on his website and uh, look at his work. Great. And where people And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Um, a website, I guess that's it. A website, which I haven't touched in three years. <laughs> so, uh, but that, yeah, and you can get in touch with me and info at Arthur Grace. I think it's still working. <laughs> My website, I swear. I'll have to check. I think it's still you were working. on it. it I was still, on it. So it's well, at one time it was down and I didn't even know it. And that's Arthur Grace. Dot com. All run together. ArthurGrace.com. Yeah. Well, Arthur, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, it was a pleasure for me too. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.